Welcome to A Load of BS, the behavioural science podcast, with me, Daniel Ross. In this series, I'm sharing conversations with the leading lights, the sharpest wits and minds, the most rigorous thinkers and entertaining provocateurs in the weird and wonderful world of behavioural science. Humans are odd, curious animals who often bark up the wrong trees. We're contradictory, illogical and unpredictable. In A Load of BS, we address why that's so, and lots of important and intriguing issues. The difference between knowledge and data in a fragile, overconnected world. The mind-boggling but strong correlation with consumption of mozzarella cheese and the number of civil engineering doctorates awarded. The power of analogies to solve wicked problems. The unconscious biases at play when we choose a bottle of wine. And the intransigence of neoclassical economic theory. I'm glad you're here for the ride. My guest today is Paul Craven. Paul is a BS expert with close to 30 years experience in financial markets where he worked for Schroders, Pimco and little-known boutique Golden Sachs. Under the umbrella now of Craven Partners, he's a keynote conference and after-dinner speaker covering topics such as decision-making, investment and sales, all from a behavioural and psychological perspective. Paul is also a magician, a member of the Magic Circle and a hickory golf enthusiast. Paul's favourite definition of behavioural economics is how real people make real decisions in the real world. And that's at the heart of what Paul and I try to disentangle in our conversation. Today's podcast is in two parts. In part one here, we discuss magic and business relationships, the bandwagon effect and confirmation biases in investing, the evolutionary value of decision-making biases, hindsight bias and why Paul is too cool to do drugs, challenging pension fund investors, the media's bias for bad news, and super forecasting. Wow, that sounds a lot, and that's just part one. Remember to sign up to a load of bs.substack.com if you haven't already, subscribe on your favourite podcast app, and nudge nudge, please give me a five-star review. Your support means everything. Thank you. Now on with the show. Paul, welcome to a load of BS. It's great to have you along today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So I'm particularly excited for this conversation because beyond a shared fascination in behavioral science, your primary career was in finance, investing and advising at the heart of financial markets over nearly 30 years in three very large and well-recognized firms, Schroders, Pimco and Goldman Sachs. And with different applications, this has also been my professional focus for the last decade. So I'm fascinated to hear what you've learned and observed about how investors make decisions, where their biases lie, and indeed what parallels this has uh, in other walks of life. I hope we'll also have time to touch on your other passions like magic, which certainly has overlap into the world of behavioral science and even hickory golf, which you'll have to explain to me. But curiously, it's often the unusual hobby which stands out strongest in someone's biography. Do you ever find that people are more interested to talk about magic tricks or understand the origins of hickory golf ahead of the real matter of the day? Yes, I, I do, actually. And, and one of the interesting things about magic, and we'll perhaps start off there, is that when I was doing a lot of magic a few years ago, and I was still working at uh, Pimco and, and Goldwyn at the time, when clients got to hear that I was well known for being a, a 
pretty keen magician, particularly interested in the art and the theory and the history of it as, as much as performing it. And many of them would come into the office and say, you know, during a meeting, will you, will you show me something? And um, I, I came up with this stock answer that I'd say, well, I, I can't actually do that within sort of office hours. And as you know, Goldman office hours were probably something like seven till seven. But if you want to go out for a drink or have dinner with me and have a chat, I would love to show you some stuff. And the nice thing about that was I got an awful lot of meetings or drinks with clients or potential clients over the issue of magic. And of course, it allowed me then to also do my professional stuff as well. But needless, I had a lot of fun showing them uh, magic effects. Uh, and one of the reasons why uh, I, I do like that, and I do link into some of the work I'm doing, with, uh, particularly in the world of behavioral science, is because both are about how the mind does and doesn't work. And behavioral science tries to explore how we have mental shortcuts, how we have heuristics, how we get to A to E, sometimes missing out B, C, and D. Well, interestingly, a magician is doing some of those same things. He or she is trying to, to fool you, and I, I emphasize in not, with an honest contract. It's an honest relationship between magician and audience. But essentially, working on the fact your brain likes patterns, uh, likes to make sense of the world. So he or she, the magician, will do things that actually make things that don't make sense of the world, but encourage you to try and think about how it could possibly be done. And when you can't come to a, a sensible, logical conclusion of how it's done, the, the the magician has achieved his aim and hopefully with a with a wow with a, a thing of amazement and so i do see it linked to the professional stuff i've done over the last 30 years which is trying to my definition of behavioral science for example is how real people make real decisions in the real world and so i i think i can link that and i think my pen and teller who many of many of your uh, listeners will have heard of the, the u.s magicians teller once said the core of every trick is a cold cognitive experiment in perception now it's not a big leap away from thinking about perception to thinking about how stock markets work or how do I interpret the latest piece of data from them you know, that's come out of the treasury or whatever it may be. So, so it's how we interpret things, perception and how perception essentially determines our world because we all have, um, you know, the way we look at colours for example, I mean, whether I'm looking at a colour magenta for example and you're looking at what you think is magenta, how do we know we're really looking at the same thing? We have no idea really. Perception is a very important part of, of what I've done whether it be understanding how people make decisions in a boardroom or for their investments or, or indeed how they, they try and work out how a magic trick's done and, and when they can't they enjoy it so outside of relationship management having skills as a magician has clearly helped you quite directly in, in your career that's 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 extremely interesting but going back looking over your financial services career close on 30 years in the business what were the sorts of biases that you observed most frequently in the industry and, and how did they manifest themselves let me unpack that question from two perspectives. Uh, one is the sorts of biases I perhaps saw in the markets or the marketplace. And two is the sorts of biases that some of the best investors I worked with or knew were aware of. In other words, trying to determine what makes a, a good investor. What does he or she do that the average investor, or let's call them the market, doesn't do? And I think, first of all, as a historian, I've always loved studying booms and busts in history. So the bubbles, whether it be Tudip Mania, the South Sea bubble, moving up to certainly when I started my career in the 80s, we had the, you'll remember, we had uh, the big Black Monday crash of October 87, which seemed so dramatic then, now looks like a small blip on the chart. We then had the big tech boom in the, the 90s, which led to a raging bull market in stocks, and then a quite a sharp slump in the early 2000s. And then, of course, we had the global financial crisis later on, and, and amidst those, there were always emerging market crises, booms and busts. And then, of course, the Japanese economic miracle in the 80s, which turned into sort of 20th 
30 years of Zoom. So I've always enjoyed watching what the whole market is doing. And, and you asked the question about one of the most commonplace biases. When I look at the whole marketplace and look at some of those booms and busts, for example, I would say the most common one is the bandwagon effect. The idea being that trends start, they may start for very good reasons. There may be companies or sectors that are latching onto something. I mentioned the tech firms of the late 1990s, for example. And then people kind of see how they're doing and there's excitement about new products, new innovation. And then investors start to jump on board. If credit is cheap, interest rates are low, people borrow money to start investing. You see your friends getting richer. That's often cited as being one of the great motivations to invest in anything, not a particularly constructive one. And you want to jump on board. And and I'd certainly say that from the, if I remember the, the tech boom of the late 90s, I saw lots of long-term fundamental investors, the sort of people that Schroders in those days were well known for, um, really having to struggle with this idea that these short-term exciting companies led by young, unshaven youths were going to change the world. And indeed, they did change the world, those, lots of those companies. And we, we know about all the success stories, the, the Microsofts, the Googles, the Apples, etc. Uh, of course, there are, for every one you can name of those, there's probably 100 uh, tech firms that had a big rally in the markets and then unfortunately collapsed because there was no earnings or revenues behind it. So I think to answer your question, the, the bandwagon effect is the biggest bias I see in the marketplace. The most skilled investors, uh, and, and alongside that, by the way, there comes things like confirmation bias. Everyone knows what that is now. It's, it's well discussed. But the idea being that I'll filter out stuff that doesn't agree with my view of the world. I'll so often surround myself with people that agree with me and I'll I'll kind of discard or, or filter out um, anything that doesn't really fit into that. I know I'm right. I'll, 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 the market's still going up. I'll, I'll put some more money in or the market's going down. I know I'm right. I'll buy some more. It doesn't matter which way you play it. But of course, during a, a, a bubble, it, it exacerbates the, the bubble. So so I think I think the bandwagon effect and confirmation bias would be the two I've seen most evidence of in the marketplace and indeed gen- investors generally. What do the good ones do? Well, the good ones, first of all, are probably better than most at recognizing there's a bandwagon effect. I mean, just being aware of these biases makes them a little bit less dangerous. I think even now, looking back on the 90s, as the example I chose, there were people saying that um, it's not a bubble, you know, technology is going to change the world. Well, they were right on that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the stocks are going to keep on going up from bottom left to top right. I mean, they, they crashed quite hard uh, in the early 2000s. So, so I think being aware that you may be in a bubble, being aware there's a bandwagon effect is a pretty good place to start. You know, there's not just following the herd, not just being part of the what Jim O'Neill used to call the lazy consensus. That's a definitely a highlight of some of the best investors I've known. And then secondly, this idea of confirmation bias. And I think this is really where we start to, to focus in on those investors who differentiate themselves. They ask a question which many people don't ask. And that question they ask themselves constantly is, where could I be wrong? And frankly, this is the best place to start in an attempt to overcome your own confirmation bias, is never assume you're always right. Try and find evidence that disproves you. And interestingly, one of my intellectual heroes, Darwin, took so long to publish some of his great work on evolution. There are a number of reasons why. The reason most are commonly cited is religious fears. He didn't want to upset the religious consensus of the day that, that evolution was something that was dangerous and possibly even devilish. But the other reason that he delayed his publication was he actually, he talks about his golden rule, the idea being that he wanted to always challenge himself to find more evidence just in case he was wrong. So every time he found evidence he was right, he, he his journals are full of him saying, I must find more, I must find more. And he was very late to publish his stuff. And it was only, of course, when, when Wallace began to publish or threatened to publish his stuff on evolution that Darwin finally came, came out with, with his own brilliant works. So that, that's a really interesting question. And I ask investors the whole time is, do you actually say to yourself, where could I be wrong? Because if you don't, you are liable to be guilty of confirmation bias. 
it's interesting you, you what you're saying is, is that you know increased self-awareness and self-questioning is key to overcoming the the biases which you highlight but it, it strikes me that behavioral science still needs to shift quite significantly further from academic and literary discourse from amusing anecdote to more practical application i wonder how the industry whether it's financial services or otherwise can increase that self-awareness are there any particular techniques or is what you seem to be implying is that there are just some good investors who are more self-aware and are more reflective than others. But do you think behavioral science has a bigger role to play in a more mainstream manner to improve people's decision making? Yes, I certainly do. And I would certainly agree with that criticism often leveled at behavioral sciences that a lot of people say, well, it's a lot of anecdotes, a lot of just so stories. I mean, I'll, I'll use a sort of perhaps a, a typically heavy handed phrase, how do you monetize it? And the answer is it's not easy and people have tried different ways. So often, for example, the preferred way of investment among a lot of behavioral investors is deep value. Ben Graham, and it moves on to Warren Buffett. And so that way of looking at the long term and looking at deep value and markets that are oversold, or sorry, companies that are oversold, and therefore they've had a lot of biases already pushed into the them, they're out of favour and you can buy cheap look good long-term stocks. Another way I've seen mentioned quite a few times in my career is can we possibly go in a more quantitative way? Can we strip out lots of the human emotion, the human biases by using some kind of quantitative, we can call it AI in this day and age, algorithmic type investment where we set rules and we stick to them and we don't let humans interfere with them and we, we back test them. And we, now the problem with that is, is in my experience is often when you can come up with a perfect back test and then once you start implementing them, some of the quant models fail badly and there's an old joke that you know with, with quant investing it's like going up by the stairs and down by the elevator so you have a nice long run up and then a very sharp collapse down I don't tend to when I'm asked offer huge amounts of advice on how should you invest using some sort of behavioral science technique what I would strongly advise and this is I, I think that the way forward in terms of using behavioral science to become a better investor is to start looking at your data the data you've got historically at the moment I'm very fortunate I'm working with a company called Behavior Lab who I think are, are the leading exponents of this in fact I think they're out on their own by considerable distance. And what they would do is they'd take five or preferably more years data of an asset manager and look at his or her data and they'd start to spot patterns, trading patterns in the way that stocks are bought or sold or added to. So for example, you might find that some asset managers are very good at picking undervalued stocks. This is something that comes through quite a lot, by the way. They will buy them successfully at a good price. They will enjoy a good ride up in those stocks, doing very well for them or in, for their clients, I should say, because a lot of these are institutional pension funds, long-term investors or long-term asset managers, but then they, they're not always very good at selling them. You know, as they fall in love with their stock and you need to see the data and see it. Now, that's sort of one level of it. What do you then do? Well, what Behavior Lab trying to do is to show you the data and then give you coaching and consultancy relating around that data. What can you do? How can we integrate ourselves, that sort of knowledge and learning into your process? So you'd go back and look at the way decisions are made with committees or individuals and can you integrate the improvements, the recognition of those biases into actually improving your process? So it's a very, very rigorous approach. And as, as I say, I think the result, they've been going a few years now, and they've got a lot of money they're looking at helping being managed. And the results are incredibly encouraging. I, I think that's the way you use behavioral science rather than a particular way of investing, like value or quant or whatever. And building on that, as I reflect on your original definition of behavioral science, in other words, how real people make real decisions in the real world, what I find really interesting is that conventional economic theories still dominate much of business thinking. In other words, we mostly believe that we make rational, optimal, evidence-based decisions and that markets are perfectly efficient. What I'm trying to get to the heart of, why is it that most of us have such terrible self-awareness? I thought it maybe would make sense to start to unpack some of Danny Kahneman's system one versus system two thinking as very different modes of decision-making. 
Those are very good points. The only thing I would say before I even try and attempt to talk about them is to warn anyone away from overly using the word irrational, because it's very easy to say, oh, the bandwagon effect, it's irrational, jumping on board what everyone else is doing. It's very easy to say it's irrational to have confirmation bars. I'm nervous about that. There's quite a big debate within the behavioral science world about what is rational versus irrational. Uh, Let me give you an example. A lot of the biases that we talk about as being irrational have natural evolutionary origins with us as, as, as animals, essentially. So again, let's look at the ones we've talked about, the herd instinct. It's a really good survival strategy. You've seen them, you've seen the herds of wildebeest, you've seen the flocks of starlings. If everyone is herding together, it does offer security and safety. And yes, you could probably get picked off on the outside, but the bulk of the herd or the flock will maximize its chance of surviving. So it's incredibly rational in that sense of the word. It only becomes irrational if you take that natural environment, let's call it the, the ancestral savannah as far as humans are concerned, where our, perhaps our, all the, our minds really developed. You fast forward to the 20th century and you have an artificial environment like a marketplace. A marketplace like a stock market is an artificial environment. So all those things that have served you so well from the evolutionary sense of point of view don't look quite as clever when you apply them to how I invest in stock markets. So I'm nervous about using the word irrational, but, but I accept that that's conventional term, and as well, but I will try and avoid it where best I can. I'll just say we have biases for very good reasons. They work down well over millions of years. They just don't work in the short period we've had stock markets. And to corroborate that, one talks about biases, concepts like scarcity and abundance. While one often critiques those, they actually also have, I think, great evolutionary value as well. Sometimes there's no harm in chasing something which is scarce or indeed following a crowd when something is in abundance. There's often good reason for that. Absolutely. Uh, it's funny because we're so quite rightly obsessed with the present, but we, we forget about... Well, let me go one stage back. It's something, a point that Gergi Gerenza made. It's a very interesting point because it does relate to what we've just talked about. In schools, education, we're very keen to t- teach kids about things like biology, which, which is great. And it's very easy to say, you know, this is the arm, this is the elbow. We never really go into well, into psychology, not not at that level, not a basic educational level. It's all about what you can see as opposed to what you can feel. Gigarenza said, we teach children our biology, but not the psychology that shapes fears and desires. Now, okay, so you may say, well, that's a bit waffly, Paul, be more specific. Well, let's look at what we teach children in, in the world of maths. We teach them the maths of certainty. So that's geometry, that's trigonometry, that's calculus. But we don't teach them enough, in my opinion, about the the mathematics of uncertainty. What's that? That's probability and stats. Now think about it. When you and I leave school, I mean, there will be a few of us who become architects and things, but most of us don't need to know how to calculate the surface area of a cone. But we'll come across probabilities and stats every day of our lives. I think we could improve our education system when it comes to correcting some of our obvious biases just by teaching the right sorts of mathematics and the right sorts of biology. I, let's teach a bit more probability and statistics and indeed psychology at an earlier age and, and not worry about the surface area of a cone quite as much. Our friend Rory Sutherland, he often quotes Alan Kay and I, I love this because for me it's another important insight in behavioural science and indeed investment and those biases you, you referred to earlier and how what skillful investors do and unskillful investors don't. And it's a quote by a gentleman called Alan Kay who said, quotes, a change in perspective is worth 80 IQ points. So it's not just about intelligence, it's about can I look at this issue from a from a different area and someone who died recently Edward de Bono who uh, read all his books when I was younger and I, I still think they're brilliant uh, although he was a very strange man but he was a brilliant thinker and the Six Hats if you haven't read the Six Hats book I mean it's, it's extraordinary way of giving yourself different perspectives on, on an issue a problem a challenge an investment doesn't matter what it is it could be a personal something in your personal life try and look at it from a different perspective that's often the way to, to solve a problem one of the real benefits of things like CBT is that if people have personal challenges you're asked you're encouraged to say well how would you 
you help a friend who had this issue? And by the way, this could apply to business issues or anything. It's much easier for you to advise a friend on their problem than it is to advise yourself on your own problem. So this change of perspective is something that I really want to, I like to look at. And, and I think behavioral science is probably the best way of doing that. Talking of uncertainty, thinking about probabilities in decision-making in everyday life, let me just go back to the system one versus system two. I mentioned it and I just want to cover it off since I think it's just an interesting framework for understanding different modes of decision-making. Can you unpack what we're talking about when we talk about system one and system two and, and the different ways in which the brain is working? Well, well, Kahneman's brilliant book, Thinking Fast and Slow, it's, it's not actually his idea, by the way, he, he, but he's, he's the one that's popularized it. And again, I, I should have, he's not talking about physical parts of the brain. It's, it's about the, a mental model of the brain. Kahneman thinking is that you have one, side of, one part of your brain, system one, which is fast, instinctive, emotional, pretty reactive. And again, this is where evolution comes from. It's always sort of hardwired in you. And then Homo sapiens in the last 200,000 years has developed a neofrontal cortex. And this is responsible for system two thinking, which is much more logical, analytical, evidence-based. The idea being I can be rational and I can examine problems. I'm not going to just use instinct to sort it out. I actually prefer Jonathan Haidt's metaphor of the elephant and the rider, as I think it's actually closer to the truth. The idea being that the elephant and the rider, so you're, the rider is the conscious mind. It's the one that's sitting astride the elephant. It's sitting proud. It's got strategy. It's looking to the distance it's able to, to be logical and sensible. And the elephant represents your unconscious mind. So it can be slow, it can be big, but actually it can also be pretty reactive. And the idea being that if you're sitting on an elephant, you may want to, as the strategist, go that way to your left, for example, but the elephant's thirsty and sees a waterhole to its right. The unconscious mind, the elephant, will probably dominate your thinking. And it's a, it's a really clever way of, of looking at it, I think. The basis of Kahneman's book is saying, look, we need to use more system two and less system one, because system one tends to dominate our thinking, dominate the way we make decisions. It's much more instinctive than, than we'll ever let on. And, and often what happens is system two ends up just essentially trying to rationalize or justify system one behavior. Another commentator likens it to the Oval Office versus the press office. So the Oval Office makes decisions and the press office has to justify them. But that may be going a bit too far. But then let's just think, I mean, you could, some people think in terms of just Spock and Kirk, and that's an interesting way of doing it. Spock's the logical system two thinker, Kirk's the more reactive, emotional leader. And the theory says that behavioral science uncovers all the biases that are evident in, in system one, and it teaches us how to be more system two. It's an okay way of looking at the world, I think. But the problem with that is, is that once again, it, it ignores the fact that those biases and heuristics are there for very good evolutionary reasons, which is why I just step away from it as being a perfect argument. I just like it as a model. When I'm talking to, to audiences, and when I'm, I do a lot of, before COVID, I was doing 50 to 60 talks a year on behavioral science. I'd often illustrate it with a poster. I'd put a poster up, a big poster up on the, the screen behind me that said, beware of pickpockets. And I would ask people how they would react if they were in a crowd, walking along, say, a busy platform in a train station. They see a beware of pickpockets sign, how they'd react. And they say, well, I'd tap my wallet. They'd literally, you know, physically tap their chest, their, their pockets on their, on their trousers. That's what most people do. I, I go and stand by some of these signs occasionally just to see exactly how people behave. I'm going to ask you a question now. Is that a rational thing to do? And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, where would you stand if you're a pickpocket? You'd stand near the signs because you can see where everyone's wallet is. And trust me, if you're a pickpocket and you want to steal someone's wallet, it's a pretty good start if you know where it is, which pocket to go for. That's the elephant and the rider. If you were genuinely using system two, you'd say, I mustn't tap my pocket round here. You'd wait. You could ask yourself, well, why bother tapping your pocket in the first place? Because if it's gone, it's gone. If it's not gone, it's not gone. But it's instinctive. It shows again how the human mind will quickly jump to a, to try and 
makes sense of the world will tap his or her pocket to check it's there. And it's not a very sensible thing to do if you start to analyse it. But guess what? We're human. That's what we do. The anecdote reminds me of another of your stories, which I've enjoyed, which maybe you'd like to share on hindsight bias, which is the pencils, which if I'm not mistaken, said drugs don't work, or I may have misquoted. I think you know what I'm getting at. Yeah. So a few years ago in New York, it was, I think, some barriers in New York. They had a big drug problem, of course, as many cities do. And they wanted to encourage children to not think of drugs as being cool. And so they issued pencils. I think the kids were somewhere between six and 11. I give these pencils away on my talks. It says, too cool to do drugs. One, two, three, four, five words. And they gave all these pencils out to, to children, hoping that as the kids would use these pencils, they would subliminally tell themselves they were too cool to use drugs. And of course, what happened? It didn't take very long, though, a week or two. And some kid goes up to the teacher and says, look, look at my message. And of course, because they've been wearing down the pencil, as the pencil's gone down, the message has actually been shortened and they've lost the word too. So now the message on the, everyone's pencil says, cool to do drugs. And then essentially you keep using the pencil and it says, do drugs. And funny, just drugs. And, and the reason I love to show that story or tell that story is because I can imagine it was, you know, there was some educational authority somewhere that thought it'd be a really good idea to do this, to have pencils saying, too cool to do drugs. But once you know what happens, you have the benefit of hindsight. It seems a bloody silly idea. And it makes, you know, it's, it's a humorous story. It makes people laugh, but it gets the point and people remember that. So again, I should also say that storytelling is one of the best ways to be persuasive. And I've worked in not just portfolio management, but should we say business development and sales half my career. And so if you can tell stories, you become much more persuasive. So everyone seems to remember the pencil story when I tell it, but it's a true story. So your question was about hindsight bias. After the event, we're all experts. We know if something worked or something didn't work. I do get amused sometimes when I read the financial reports in the daily newspapers and it says, you know, the market was up 0.34% yesterday because of this and this. And I think to myself, well, if it's that simple and that easy, just tell me the day before. And next week, we'll all be sitting on a lot yacht in Bermuda because it's not easy. It's easy with hindsight to try and find reasons that may possibly have had something to do with it. But it's certainly not as simple as it's made out to be. But of course, in investment, hindsight bias is one of the biggest things that we as managers or our clients have. And we have to be aware of it. And it's interesting because when I'm working with portfolio managers to try and help mitigate some of these biases, one of the ways that you can certainly mitigate hindsight bias in a very big way is to keep what's called a decision diary. And actually, there's a conversation with Kahneman and Mabusin on this, which is worth looking up. And I think something like Mabusin said, what's the single biggest piece of advice you give any investor? I think Kahneman says, go to the local drugstore, buy a notebook and write down the reasons for all your investment decisions. Why do you do that? Because then six months later, when the stock has done really well or really badly or whatever it is you're investing in, you in your own head go back and start morphing the reasons why you bought or sold it. And, and it's an interesting point there, actually, because I now also sit on the investment committee of various pension funds. So I get fund managers, I, the people I've worked with for 30 years, on the other side of the table now. And it's fun to, intellectually stimulating, I should say, to hear them saying probably the same sort of things that I said when I was on their side of the fence. And it's interesting because sometimes you hear a portfolio manager say, talk about a stock that, should we say, it's gone down, just to use some generic numbers, say it's gone down 15% since they bought it. And I'm not trying to catch out the fund manager, let me emphasize that. I'm just trying to understand their mode of thinking. And I'll say, well, it's gone down 50%. These things happen. If you tell us about why you think it's a good investment. And he or she will then give the reasons why they still think it's worth investing. And they may even say, I want to buy some more if it gets to this level, because I truly believe the story. It's interesting. I sometimes then ask the question, well, if we gave you a, a second portfolio, an identical portfolio to the one you're currently managing for us with the same guidelines, would you buy some in the second portfolio? Now, of course, what they should say immediately is, of course they would, yes. But you'd be surprised how often they go, well, I probably wouldn't buy it straight away now, but if it falls a bit further, I would buy it. To which my response would be, well, why are you holding it in the first portfolio? So you're essentially just trying to reveal some cognitive distance. Again, it's not trying to catch them out and say, you're silly, but you can see how people think about these things. They 
they compartmentalize money. They're obsessed with book value. What price do I buy it at? And it changes their perception. Again, back to that Alan Kay point, you know, changing perceptions were 80 IQ points. And so again, I think what we're trying to do is behavioral science enthusiasts is basically poke people, including ourselves, by the way, and say, just think about that from a different angle. Put a different thinking hat on in De Bono's terms. You asked me about the biggest biases earlier. Hindsight bias is probably actually, in terms of the media, the biggest bias that we witness. Certainly in the investment context, I think it's extremely challenging to accept sunk costs. I also, by the way, think that the notebook advice in terms of tracking one's decision making is as relevant in the investment context as in any other mode of business where one's making decisions on a regular basis. You'll remember that quote, when an economist is wrong, it's called a revised forecast. When a trader is wrong, it's called a loss. Right. I mean, as an economist, if you have a school of thought which you stick by consistently and rigidly for a generation, cycles will insist that at some point you'll be right if you're sufficiently belligerent. (laughs) It's true. Eventually it'll come true. Yes, it feels that way, doesn't it? It's interesting because when you look at the long term, some of these things, I think there are behavioral truisms. And there's a very good book out recently called The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel, which I'd recommend to anybody interested in long-term investment. And it's not a book written for investment professionals, it's written for everyone. So it's very accessible. And what he points out, a couple of really interesting things. In our news-dominated thinking, bad news sells. If it bleeds, it leads, was an old common adage in the days of the paper press. And Housel's point is that bad news happens very quickly. It's easy to report on something happening, that very good news takes a long time to happen. So you know, it's interesting academic um, exercise for anybody listening to this is you're all familiar with daily newspapers. If you had to write a newspaper once every 100 years, what would the headline be if you wrote the headline today? And it probably would be something like amazing collapse in childhood mortality or poverty a fraction of what it was 100 years ago, you wouldn't worry about some of the short-term volatility in stock markets or the odd geopolitical event in the short term. But they're very, very dominant in the short term at being reported in the news. One of the best investors I ever met, I ever followed, if I put my own money with him, he wouldn't read the daily newspapers until the evening, by which time there was stale news, because he wanted to sift between the actual facts being reported in the newspaper and the emotions that went round it or clouded and wanted to avoid this bandwagon effect. Now, again, I'm not advising everyone to do that, but I thought it was an amazing way of not trying to be caught up in the constant flow of bad news that seems to pervade the media. And again, with hindsight bias, we can always look back and see why something happened or didn't happen, often wrongly. But if I ask you what's going to happen tomorrow, there's probably a thousand things on any subject. And then each of those thousand branches has a thousand more branches and a thousand more branches. So making a three-day forecast becomes almost impossible. This is not like weather forecasting, where at least a weather forecast has a good chance of being right if he or she says tomorrow will be the same as today. Funnily enough, to two other books I'd throw into the mix on the art of prediction and, and forecasting. One is Factfulness by Hans Rosling and the other is Super Forecasters by Philip Tetlock, which I think are both relevant and interesting around this discussion. Anything by Tetlock is brilliant because he has analysed all the data. So he's initially interested in things like political forecasts in the 70s and he looked at what all the experts were saying all over the media and essentially came to the conclusion that experts were no better than the layman, I think a phrase in the UK, the, the man or woman on the Clapham omnibus would be at predicting what's going to happen in a few years' time. And so later on, the book you mentioned, he came up with super for, I think super forecasting, which was, well, how do some people do get it right? And he analysed a group of people who do have a better than average track record on a 
consistent basis. And it's worth reading the book just to understand what sorts of minds go into those who are brilliant, for, are better forecasters on average. And it's not like they're super intelligent or brilliant economists or brilliant political strategists. Often they're ordinary people, but they do have a way of looking at issues or challenges with more perspectives than most. Often they're polymaths. In other words, they're not a specialist in one field or one area. They're actually pretty knowledgeable in, in, across a, a variety of areas. Uh, and I've always liked the whole concept of polymaths. There's a book by David Epstein, which I would certainly recommend, which explains why generally in life, people who are specialists who appear to be the experts in anything, the best sports players, the best investors, whatever, actually the real best ones actually had normally have interests outside of their main thing, which allows them to develop their skills. And he starts off by looking at Tiger Woods versus Roger Federer. It's quite an interesting idea. So Woods has always been a top golfer, played from the age of two. Federer, on the other hand, could play anything and do anything he wanted, any sport, and chose tennis much later on in life. And he uses that as a way of just getting you into the story about sometimes the people who do best are those that don't specialize too early, but actually developed a range of skills. And as you probably know, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger keep on saying that one of their best bits of advice is for people to read. They're not necessarily talking about nonfiction. They're saying just read to get more experiences of other things. Don't just be pigeonholed in one area. I know the Epstein book. I've actually have it on the go at the moment, uh, funnily enough. And I really like the polymath theory because I consider myself more of a polymath than a specialist. So it suits my agenda. And there, part one of my interview with Paul hits the pause button. Sign up to a load of bs.substack.com and subscribe on your favourite podcast provider to make sure you hear part two, including the story of Paul's chance meeting with the late Rolling Stones drummer Charlie Watts and lots of other BS too. I hope you enjoyed the show. Until next time.